<laughs> Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. But what the fella said, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? Cuckoo clock. Five point five percent today. Good, good, good. Yeah, that shit is no good. Uh, hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan, and I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode four. Last week, Tom, when you gave me, yeah, I guess I should I should really sell that. It's the last double episode we have. It We're is reviewing both of our films at the same time. Uh, we have six number episodes left after this. Um, it's kind of hard to believe. Going to be yeah. honest with you, and then we. Uh, We'll transition to something else. Re, re transition into into in Pandora into like the tree. And it's all great. Um, we'll see what happens. Last week, Tom, uh, in our in our weird beer quest, uh, you presented to us a eleven point seven percent beer. I believe I had it again. I poured it into a glass. Same. That shit is like a mango smoothie, my friend. <laughs> Was it the same result of? After our podcast, when we were downstairs at Munchies, I split it. I was okay. That makes a lot of sense. I was trying to talk to you about something. I'm sure, as women problems. <laughs> yeah. And then no, it was like about taxes. It was oh. about COVID. Uh, no, it was about um, COVID, mask wearing, and uh, something else. I'm sure it was related to a woman. Uh, I think we were talking about women at the time. I think so. Um, and then just halfway through my discussion, I looked at you and said. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm going to go upstairs and eat this sandwich. Well, you were making a point about something. It was about mask wearing and at the gym. Yeah. And I feel like taxes came in there somehow also. I think we were talking about taxes and you were using the mask situation at the gym to make a point about the taxes. I'm, I'm sure I was trying to and I'm sure it didn't make any sense. I think I was trying. I remember trying to help you out, be like, "No, no, no! I get it. Listen, to I was this. just like, I was like, no, you, you're like, you're, you don't get it. I was like, I know you don't get it. <laughs> and so we've, we've instituted a limit uh, for the podcast. Uh, if you know, sorry, folks, for uh, for the foreseeable future, we're going to keep it to to seven point five percent. My number three is going to be hard to do that since we've made the decision to drink something else for that. Mm. Um, this happens, but. This one is a 5.5%. Hopefully, what happened last time doesn't happen this time. Tom, our, our episode today, you know, centers around a lot of bad apples, mm. right? And so I think, why not have a Sour Me Black Apple Ooh, beer? Black Apple. Yeah, this is. Uh, so, it breaks our farm-to-table rule. But it's from DeClaw Brewing out of Baltimore, Maryland. Ooh, and Baltimore. That's a sister city. Sister city. Sister city yeah, of the podcast. For sure. um, this is an ale brewed with black apple puree, orange peel, spices, and of course, because it's 2021, lactose. Oh my God, why are they doing that? <laughs> I don't know. All right. Partner, keep on rolling. You know what time it is. Throw your hands up. What? What? Throw your hand. What Throw your that? hands up. I'm singing some Limp Bizkit. Did he have something to Are do with this? Are you writing a thesis over there? What's, what's going I'm on? I'm just making, putting my timestamps things. Oh my god. 
You are always so responsible. Trying to keep notes. <laughs> Trying to get a little bit of the beer on to. That's a good color. It smells good. Look at that color. Oh, yeah. It's, it's kind of like a. Oh, it smells like a cider. It's very, very full. Dink it. That's good. I like it. It tastes like a, it tastes like a sour beer cider. Hmm. It's got like a. There's. I don't know why lactose is in there because yeah, it doesn't no, do anything. If anything, I think it flattens it out. Really, so I don't think it, the, I don't think it does any. I, I assume it's meant to add body. I, so we had this conversation about the beer we didn't do last week, mm-hmm. where it was a sour, but it didn't really taste like a sour. This, I think, too, and it didn't because the sa- I like when a sour really blossoms in your mouth when it kind of gets sour, you know. Everywhere you can really taste the sourness. It's like a, it's like a warhead sort of like thing. a warhead. Yeah, this has like a nice sour flavor, but it doesn't doesn't like bloom. It just sits there on your on the tongue. It doesn't it doesn't like mm. have that kind of extra sour burst. No, it reminds me. It tastes like a dry cider, mm. which I find I find it pleasant. I, yeah. This is this I is too. something I didn't expect to enjoy. I expect to be, be a good weird. fall beer. Yeah, we are doing it. In the complete opposite part of the year. I know, Mario. Um, What's a what are spring beers? Should we do? Should we switch and do well, I flowers? Did, I almost did an Irish red, but Ooh, it's, not, yeah. it's not wheat because of St. Patrick's Day coming up this Wednesday. Yep. But it's not weird. We have to stick to weird. And the last time we did an Irish red, the whole fucking world fell on us. Oh right. right after we did it. Um, I also found a perfect beer for my number three, but we can't do it because we're doing something else. And I also there was only one four pack of it left, mm. and I just I didn't I didn't want to have it. Is it like a beer version of the what we're gonna drink? Yeah, it's the beer version we're gonna have, and the last the last word after that it's cannoli. Oh, oh, oh okay. so it's a blanc blanc cannoli. Oh, interesting. No, but we should drink what we gotta drink. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna go, and if they have like when I pick up the stuff for that, if they have it. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna get it, and we can at least like split one. Yeah, yeah, just you just know, to keep the just beer to keep the beer train but... going. Um, keep keep the beer train going. You know, keep keep the money train going. Keep the money train going. Yeah, money train. Uh, that is that is often what sequels and remakes oh, are oh. a part of. Is the money train? You know, also is a part of a money train. Woody Harrelson. You know who else? Wesley Snipes. Oh, yeah, in our film. Very good. Coming to America. We are going back to America. Oh, hell no, your majesty. Come on! I'm back! Say it again! So good to see you. Well, I be damn. Look who done come up in here. Hey, it's Kunta Kinte and Ebola. The famine and blood diamonds. Nelson Mandela and Winnie. Those hungry babies with the flies on the face. Hey, oh, 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 that's too much oh, now. You oh, stepped yeah. over the line now. We won't be talking that kind of shit about the hungry babies. You're going to have to get out of my chair. Politically incorrect. So what you doing back here, Hotel Rwanda? <laughs> <laughs> I'm back. Say it again. 
And I started that before, like, right at the end of the trailer, and I don't know what happened before that, so I can't comment on it. It doesn't matter. I'm assuming something goofy. Um, it is a bunch of years later. 30. 30 years later. Uh, Prince Akeem is now the... is. Is going to be the king of Zamunda because his dad, Joffy Jafar, is dying. Can James Earl Jones stand up anymore? You think? I don't know. I wonder. I mean, he's he's had a good run, so if he, he did. He felt I I uh, when I saw that he was going to be in this movie, I assumed he was going to be uh, be in better shape because I always feel bad for the actors who he's kind of 90. are really That's... old and you know get trucked out to do this thing and then. They say a couple lines, but they're all slurry and old. And I just feel bad for him. You know what I mean? I mean, it's 13 years older than the actor who announced your movie at number four for Best Picture and forgot to announce the nominees. So mm. he's doing he's doing well. <laughs> he's doing good. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, but there's a rival. Uh, there's a warlord in Nexdoria. A kind of rival for the territory. There's been a lot of peace in Zamunda, but now there's going to apparently maybe be no peace. And 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 Akeem's got three daughters, and and this rival warlord, General Izzy, played by just a a, a great Wesley Snipes. We're in a snipesance. We were in a reconnaissance a while ago, and now we're in a snipesance. It's it's nice to see Wesley Snipes embracing like because a lot of people see him as an action actor, which he is, but he's really also a comic actor. He's I mean, I'm two, be very, it Tu Wong Fu? Um, White Men Can't Jump. White Man Can't Jump. Demolition Man's a comedy. Oh, yeah, and he does a lot. Rising yeah. Sun. He's always he's funny in everything. <laughs> <laughs> but he's... Passenger 57. I love 54. Passenger 57. 57, man. Okay. Love it. Um, I think Motherfuckers can't skate uphill. I think he's great. Motherfuckers trying to skate uphill. <laughs> I think he's great in this in this movie. Yeah. I think he's great in Dolomite. Is my I think he's excellent. In Dolomite is my name. I think he's great in this movie too. Um, uh, for some reason, they have he has to have a son. Prince Akeem has to have a son. There there has to be a king. There can't be a queen. You know, rule over Zamunda. Lo and behold, he discovers that he impregnated Leslie Jones uh, one night. Uh, that that night in Coming to America, when him and Semi. Played by Arsenio Hall. America. Um, yeah, you didn't do a Neil Diamond impersonation. Get to get in there. Everywhere around the world, we're coming to America. Remember that? Saving Silverman was almost uh, Wesley Snipes was my six. He was mine too. In for best supporting. Actor. I felt so sad that I kicked uh, him off. I did put Eddie Murphy. Um, in my, in my supporting in my actors. Yeah, we're off track because who cares? Uh, he goes to America. He goes back to Queens to look for his son. He goes into the barbershop, and all the guys that were old 30 years ago are now super old, so they must be in, like, their hundreds. They have to be. A hundred at the youngest. Um, and he finds his son, and uh, his son doesn't want to be king, but then he does want to be king, and so he brings him back to Zamunda, and he has to train him how to be a king. But then there's a problem because Kiki Lane, who must have really enjoyed cashing that check uh, as the oldest, Akeem's oldest daughter. Uh, I was so bummed. It was, I was so sad for her. But then, I, so then, sad. I, then I thought about the check that she probably got and I was, I was happy for Kiki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She can just wait around until Barry Jenkins needs her again. Yeah. If, that's, if that's what she wants to do, she can do that now because Steve, she made like, this movie. Steve McQueen probably. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, what a, or, you know, whoever. Anybody. Any good director. She just doesn't have to do any more of these. 
Um, Jennifer Kent. I, I mean, see her in a good Jennifer I don't know. Kent performance. How how much of this do I need to do? And then, that's it. I don't I, even know. I think, I'm going to be honest with you. I watched the whole movie. I'm not a hundred percent sure what happens at the end of the movie. Did you not finish this movie? I finished it. I watched I it all the way I, to the I end. I watched all the way to the end too. I did it. But what happened at the end? Did you? I don't remember. Um, like, how does it end? Does she become? She she's going to become queen. Yeah, and he's going to become ambassador to America. So he's going to go living back to Queens. With I feel his like wife. I must have just been looking not at the television uh, when they were saying the, like those lines. Who's his wife in it? Who becomes his wife? Well, not Maurice. Oh my God! Who's who's the lady he marries? Oh, his, um, his stylist, his hair cutter. Yeah, his I partner. have it. Where is it? Oh my good, uh, Marimba. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's gonna go the royal groomer. Yeah, um, it's it's a it's a it's a really forgettable film. Hesitate to call it bad. I didn't enjoy my experience with it, um, which is I think is almost worse than saying it's bad. Yeah, I, I, because I, I, bad it it, it, it means well. It means well. It's, it's just not, not executed. It has very a well. good, fun first twenty minutes, and then it just makes a lot of weird choices. Its reliance on musical numbers is curious. Well, in the, like, um. Also, its decision to do some of the worst CGI I've seen in a major production. You didn't like that lion? Not the the lion was bad. I mean, the lion the was bad. The elephant was horrendous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I. I, I mean, the, the elephant the, looked like it was two the, dimensional. We think it was no, drawn. Not only on. that, the, the my problem with it is 1993 Jurassic. How tracking. Of mm-hmm. the actor's eyes can work to the thing they're supposed to be looking at. Yeah. You know, and fast forward 28 years and you can see a little bit of of hokiness there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looks a lot better than this did because uh, I think Eddie Murphy and Jermaine Fowler were looking at two different things and neither of those things were the elephant. <laughs> Well, I would. Can I chime in about the CGI thing too? I think it's really interesting because I was just listening to a podcast about uh, on the Ringer. So they were talking about coming to America, and they commented on the first one coming to To America um, about how like during the those the marriage sequence, the wedding scenes in Coming to America, how there were all there was like hundreds of extras. Everyone was, like, fully dressed and, like, took all this work and blah, 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 blah. And I remember those, watching those uh, scenes when I was a kid, when I saw Coming to America, and being, like, thinking they were so grand and big and, like, these, these huge spaces. And every space in this movie looks like the ballroom of, like, a really fancy hotel. Yeah, no. The Why not use not- CGI to, like... Make things look as big and as special and as interesting as they did in the first movie. No, I think the the amount of money that they were going to spend on production design went into costume design, which should be noted is excellent in this. I guess so. The cost, like every time a character is wearing something different, I thought that was impressive. Yeah, but I I would love to know like the nose. I would love to get a sense of what the nose rings are about. Does that mean something? Like everybody, like all the daughters. I mean, it's cool. I think it's just supposed to add, like, a personality, uh, a sort of culture to... But um, I also thought it was supposed to be a joke. It's a Munda. Because there's, like, the chains for the nose rings are really long. 
and they seem to go from the nose to the ear, and then the chain kind of extends down on their body. I, and I was no, like, is I that just, supposed to be? What is that supposed to be? I think <laughs> I've never seen like that before. Choice. Uh, no, I, I, it's weird because because there's there's a lot of. I think there's a lot of attempt at work here. There's a lot of like. They're trying. There's a lot of respect to the original, which I'm not sure, the hugest yeah, yeah. fan of the original. I but love a lot. the original, yeah. Um, you know, Craig Brewer is a fantastic director. Uh, well, I think it's all he did with Dolomite. Um, yeah, but, I think in another era he works a lot and makes a lot of pretty good movies. So much so that well, here comes the Amazon police. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they don't give a shit. Um, yeah, I think Craig Brewer, I think, is one of those really quality like Hollywood directors. Who yeah. I think will get lots and lots of opportunities to make movies like this that work, but they I think ultimately, if the project's not right, it doesn't feel like it worked. No, and that's the thing. It just it just feels like a real awkward fit. Um, Leslie Jones is is kind of too untethered. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. So foul language is coming here, guys. Spoiler alert: Tom's Turkey. Gonna, Tom's going to say something shitty. Hen. I you can't put Leslie Jones in a movie and uh have a guy in a bathwater going down on her and have Leslie Jones not say something gratuitously like blue about what he's doing. Yeah, the PG thirteen in this film really really handcuffed it. And I just so I didn't swear because I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that, I don't know if I want to say that, I don't know if I'm gonna get a blowback. Leslie Jones would say Tell you exactly. If you're going to put Leslie Jones in a movie, you have to let her tell everybody what that guy is doing to her. Oh, you, in missed, very you, explicit missed, that, detail. you missed that third labia fold, honey. Yeah. Sort of thing. <laughs> she, she definitely wouldn't say labia. She would say whatever else she was going to say. But Leslie, if you want to keep, if you like, would that stay PG thirteen? I guess that'd be an R rating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like I had high hopes for the Leslie Jones performance when the digitally de-aged Leslie Jones is like putting the candle between her legs and like. Wafting, <laughs> wafting scent at digitally de-aged or completely computer-generated Akeem, but then they just kind of like were like, no, just say goofy shit. Don't do Leslie no. Jones things. Just say goofy things. Was that? Was this another? By the way, because we brought up during the Wonder Woman thing, is this another consent issue with the movie? What do you mean? Like, Akeem is on drugs. Can't oh really yeah, yeah, yeah. Consent. Yeah. He's he's raped. I mean, I'm gonna be. So here's the right? thing. I mean, this like is, he's he's a victim right. of of rape. I will say they this. even make a joke about consent slightly later. Yeah. in the barber shop, and then I'm like, exactly. oh, you are aware of exactly. It. So that's what I think is really weird about this movie. We kind of talked about this off air. It's weird that this movie decided to kind of go towards like the current political cultural climate. Instead of, like, steering away from it because they didn't have to touch it because the first movie didn't do any of it. Uh, so I think that idea, like, the idea of, like, oh, it has to be a kid, it has to be a boy, it has to be a man, like, to ascend to the throne, yeah. it has to, you know, all these very regressive political things. Like, why? What's the point of that? Like, you, ha I heard Eddie Murphy on an interview talk about how they worked on this script for 10 years. You worked on the script for 10 years? That's all you came up with? No, was that McFlurry joke? <laughs> it's a McFlurpy. 
I almost sound like John Amos threw up in his mouth when he said McFlurpy. Like, we couldn't do better than McFlurpy. Come on. Yeah. Um, no, and I think there's there's a lot better, more delicate ways of handling, like, how he has another kid. Like, his strong sperm during a makeout session just impregnated her sort of thing. Like, just dumb ways of handling that mm-hmm. um, without going there. It's just... It's it's not such a big deal, I guess, because who knows? Maybe like she's also high, you but know? I guess it's not. And, so... and he consented to smoking weed, and so if they're both high, and then they both consent, I don't, I don't but I guess know. it's also not such a big deal, Mario, because this movie is really just a commercial for. It just didn't need to do that. Didn't need to, but it didn't need to do any of the things that it did. So it makes me wonder why they, um, how they settled on this story. You know what I mean? Like having almost the same exact story, but in reverse. Right, but in and with more, with more, um, like politically sensitive or culturally sensitive material to like, to like piece it together. Um, I don't know. It just seems weird. It was yeah. a very weird experience. A, it was a weird experience. Um, it, it's just it's just a weird choice. Mm-hmm. It was just a weird choice to to do the same story again. Yeah, yeah, and to yeah. do the same story again, well, especially with like the and flashbacks the, to yeah. the original movie. Yeah, but you know, you just you're doing the same story the over same and over. Story, the same story, yep. the same story. Our next film is Joe Carnahan's Boss Level. Hey, Jake, can I get a large bottle of that Bijou? You know what? Think it too large, boss. Because tomorrow isn't guaranteed. You have no idea. I used to complain that every day felt the same. And now every day is the same. Seriously. Shoes, pants, rip them, flip them. Okay, coffee anyone? I don't know how this is possible. But I keep repeating the same day. Sorry, pal! As many times as I've seen this happen to my apartment, I still can't help but think I'm never, ever getting my security deposit back. Wasn't always like this. I had a woman once. Look at you. The son I love. Now, a bunch of assholes trying to kill me over and over again. But no matter how hard I fight, I die every single day. Roy wakes up next to the co-lead of The Mummy. She's in this movie. Um, And is attacked by an assassin. And then he dispatches the assassin. And then there's a helicopter. And one of the gunners, the gunner is Tampa Bay Buccaneer Rob Gronkowski. Who looks like he's propped up in there. He does. He doesn't even look like he's, I don't even think he touches a gun once. And he dispatches them and he's been telling us to, you know, well, four plays playing in the background. I, as dumb and overplayed as music, old 70s rock music is yep. in an action sequence, I still get hard for it. You- Movie, well, a movie gonna, erection. They, I get a film erection. They, uh, they must have spent a lot of money on this soundtrack. I guess so. Because they got all the big. They got a lot of big songs. Yeah. There's no way those Boston songs come cheap. No, for sure. Um, and and Roy kind of is, is narrating to us. He's he's a former Delta Force. He's 
a heavy drinker. He's narrating to us the fact that he's kind of done this before and over and over again because he's stuck, once again, probably one of my favorite genres of film in a good old time loop. Uh, and he doesn't know why all these people are trying to kill him. Um, mm-hmm. Because no matter what, he gets to 1247, I believe it is. 1247? 1257. 1257? Um, no. 1247 or 57. Yeah, one, one of those. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 1247 because he 1250. sees 1250. Right. Um, and, you know, he doesn't know why. Um, and in one of these loops, he found he finds out that his, his, his estranged wife... Um, has been murdered in that same day and she's been working on this project uh the Os- osiris, osiris crate pro- spindle spindle yeah the osiris spindle um you know which which it ends up turns out is is a thing to kind of redo time and she has put him in this uh because good old mel gibson and will sasso um kill her and uh you know, because because they want to take it over. But when mishandled, the Osiris Spindle will undo all of reality. Kind of will just destroy the world. Um, he witnesses the destruction of the world multiple times. Um, he's also estranged from his son. And in one of these uh, redos, he he is able to spend time with his son. Um, the, the creepiest underground video game lair ever. Yeah, it's kind of fun. It looks like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kind of lair. It looks like so weird. TNNT2, Elias Kotes or whatever. I can't remember his name. Um, yeah, that's it. Casey gonna, Jones, buddy. Yeah, it's going to pop up at some point. Um, and eventually he decides that the best he could do is get revenge. So he, you know, he finds out that he's been being tracked uh, because of his tooth. Because it turns out the co-star of The Mummy, Annabelle uh, Wallace... Uh, has actually had a point in this movie, but then she's not in this movie at all. I, I can't tell if she's a real actress, but I remember just seeing her in this and going like, why are you such a small role? Mm. Anyways, um, and so he uses that to to enact revenge. He's going to, you know, kill Mel Gibson. Um, he does so successfully, but then he finds out his son is also eventually kind of murdered in that. So he keeps redoing, keeps redoing, keeps redoing, and eventually he finds out that his wife um, was actually murdered uh, 16 or so minutes after he woke up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he figures out a way to save her. Uh, and he finds out from her that, you know, he has to step back into the spindle to be the last bit of mass for the spindle to reset everything. Um, but in doing so, he only gets one last shot at it. If he dies, he dies for real. A very stay alive sort of moment. Um, remember that, that 2005 frankie muniz movie mm-hmm. okay good you didn't acknowledge the good 2005 i kept hoping you were referencing staying alive no no unfortunately the sequels um but then he says it's gonna be you know it's gonna be a piece of cake to do so and that's the end of the movie i have i have yet to find a movie of this genre that i really don't like mm-hmm. and uh this this continues continues that kind of course it's it's a lot of fun um <clears throat> After watching it, I got David Ayer and Joe Carnahan kind of mixed up, their filmography mixed up. Mm-hmm. And I remember going, like, Joe Carnahan's had some misses. And I realized it was David Ayer that had misses. And I was looking at Joe Carnahan's filmography. There's not a single Joe Carnahan film that he's done that I haven't 
liked, at least. Well, so that's really interesting. Do you, I want to hear more things that you want to say? Because, but I also would love to jump back on this David Ayer, Joe Carnahan thing. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. Frank Grillo is is a good starring lead. It's unfortunate that he's fifty five, and so his kind of action days. Well, why know, he loves steroids? <laughs> yeah, uh, but I think he he's hell of hell of he's incredibly charismatic in this. Um, he's able to carry kind of that rote the voiceover. Um, he's able to nail those lines and and some of the, like the typically annoying. Uh, cameos like Ken Jung are actually work in this. Um, I don't know. Everything just kind of. I mean that it works the best way Ken Jung cameos are. But then no, but what, other... was the, what was the other movie that Ken Ken Jung is just in? A lot. He was just in another movie as a cameo. Where we were just like, what the hell is Ken Jung doing in here? Oh, I can't remember what movie is that. I'll look it up while you talk. Um. But yeah, I, I, it's 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 a fun experience. I remember going in I, going into this. I just had. The hope of what it ended up delivering, mm-hmm. and the second, I remember you you said that the first half was. I know I'm not speaking over your review, but you didn't enjoy the first half, and then you found like the second half better. Uh-huh. Um, but that entire opening of just any time a film, like I said, opens with a music num a strong '70s music number, and does a, a solid action scene oh, with a Tom, lot of Tom and Jerry. Oh right, with a lot of. Um, <laughs> Practical special effects uh, works. I wish, I do wish, and I understand, I have a gut feeling that this film was probably in post-production when they realized it was going to be a COVID release. Uh, No, it was in, this movie has been done for a while. Oh, so the visual effects are a bit suspect, Mm -hmm. especially uh, the, like the squib CGI is terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, This is definitely a movie that would have worked well with just actual squibs every mm-hmm. time they get shot. And I yeah. don't think it, I think it would have been fine to do that. Like the, the set destruction budget shows that they could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the decapitations look bad. He's decapitated multiple times. Well, the like, head just falls, just kind of falls off like a tree branch. <laughs> yeah. Or it does like that stupid uh, underworld level of slide. Mm, um, yeah. The slide. I think that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. But, Overall, I, I had a lot of fun with this. It did it hit everything I wanted it to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not Edge of Tomorrow. It's not Groundhog well, Day. But it's better than Christmas Every Day. It's better than Happy Death Day, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And the second one. Um. Yeah. I mean, I. So it's not even like the first half. It's like the first. There's like acts to this movie, and it's the first. I think act. There's like five acts, which well, is you, interesting. You could argue movie, that there's only acts. three. So there's the beginning. The first act is the beginning of the movie until he saves his son's life, and then he wakes up, real having realized because right before he saves his son's life, he realized by taking like a bunch of bullets in the back from all the assassins that are out to chase him, he realized that he's being tracked somehow. You know what I mean? Then he goes, he busts into the Chinese food restaurant, you know, at 11 in the morning and then starts ripping his teeth out. Which is a great, that bathroom scene's great. It's fucking great. From that moment... I don't know who that actor is that that plays the security specialist, but that guy has like really impeccable timing with his comedy. From that (laughs) moment... Jesus! <laughs> From that 
moment until he realizes that Mel Gibson says the like, but who's gonna save your son? Thing and he like run he cuts off Mel Gibson's head and then he go runs back to the video arcade where apparently his son has spent literally all day. Um, that's the after that is the third act. Who did murder his son? I think just people, just people just, murdered just his son. Rant, just like one of the security, I guess. The second act is fucking great. It's hilarious. It's it finds itself. Because he stops narrating every goddamn fucking second that the movie's playing. And talking to himself in narration and, like, commenting on what's happening. And, like, trying to tell us things about the different people and all this other stuff. That just lets us lets us watch him murder people. And then figure out how best not to be murdered. And in doing so, the movie really loosens up and is allowed to find a rhythm. And so the entire conversation with Pam about the Adolf Hitler gun. Love it. Love it. And then I love later when he talks about like, I forget what the conversation was. He was saying something about his penis. And then like he goes back, except, oh, that's, oh, this is the worst. No, he was like, oh, that's like the worst way to die. Oh, except for this one time. And they go back to like this other attempt when Pam is just driving by him and shoots him in the dick. He's just like, oh. Or. My favorite line being the, what is this, a katana? It's a Chinese sword. Don't make it. Just, having Mel Gibson deliver, don't make this about race, is on the nose, but pretty great. I love when Mel Gibson like, digs, makes a dig at liberals with a sword in his hand. He's like, fucking liberals. He's like, oh, you got a sword in your hand. That's shit. But it has a self-awareness. It's like, oh, it's sure. Not, it's, it's but that's why making it's, fun of But that's why it's so funny. Yeah. I wish the whole movie, I wish the whole movie was like... A, found a way to be the second act of the movie, which is like the longest part of the movie for most of it. But I think, but I think there's still a humor in the, in the third act. I, there is a humor in the third act, but it, it's because it's try, it has to tie it up. It's attempts to tie it up, I think. Or, or they just don't... They want There's like a, a mild attempt to resonate emotionally. Yeah. And I think it's not anyone's fault. I think they're just trying to make a movie. And it's just like everyone's instinct when they're trying to make a movie. They're kind of trying to, you know, they want to tie it up. And the same thing with like putting the kid in it and like trying to make that emotion. I would just, I would love it if the stakes were different. And so I didn't have to worry about having to feel anything. I mean, Naomi Watts clearly. Oh, that's his actual son. Who? Frank Grillo's son? Yeah. Oh, cool. I was like, I really wondered why they had such, like they had really good chemistry. I'm like, Mm. this kid's not a terrible actor. (laughs) He's better than Naomi Watts in this movie. Yeah, Naomi Watts was definitely looking for I love how Naomi Watts showed up. No, Gibson was actually trying, and Naomi Watts just saw this as a paycheck. There's no way Naomi Watts didn't just show up to work in that maroon dress, and then just they just filmed all day, and then she, she was like, good, I'm done. Yeah. And even if they were just like, I want one more scene, blah, blah, blah. So my interesting... my The thought I kept having with it, though... Is and I have this a lot, and maybe this is not the right time to have this conversation. And maybe I don't know. So you mentioned like the David Ayer Joe Carnahan thing, which is I think is really interesting because if you compare the two filmographies, I suppose if you're looking at things from one perspective, Joe Carnahan has no misses, and David Ayer has like a bunch of misses. But David Ayer has also tried to make different like real movies, yeah. And I I I don't. I can't always get my brain. I can actually, I can never get my brain into the position of disregarding everything that I 
like or dislike or know or feel or whatever about movies and kind of just like disengaging that to just kind of sit back and let a genre piece wash over me. So, so yeah, so the first half of the movie, I mean, we just kind of talked a little bit about this off air because we had a technical difficulty here. Um, the first half of the movie, they even go out of their way to say, like, Frank Grillo's narration says, it's like, it's like a video game. Like, I'm in a boss fight, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, don't is, fucking say that shit. We don't need that stuff. Especially when the film's doing a good job of showing that's a video game. Right. And that's, I think, I think what you had mentioned off air, and I'm, maybe it's good that we had it off air and not on the air, is that because we can make this shorter, is that, like, I'm, I just, I have so much, maybe it's a character, I have so much trouble, like, letting my, like, letting go of certain, like, aesthetics and just kind of, ignoring them and having fun with a movie maybe i would have liked coming to the 2wo america more if i was willing to just kind of let all the pepsi and buick like you know things wash over me embrace the nostalgia and the dancing and just kind of let it go you're talking to somebody with the guest in their top 100 it wouldn't have helped coming to america but so i had i had i'm gonna so i enjoyed aspects of the guest i think from the standpoint that the guests also seems bad like it's not a bad movie because I think it's it has a lot of things to recommend for it, but it all, it's also not trying to be. It's not trying to be anything. It's not, it, and, it, and it steers into it's not trying to be that stuff. And in doing that, and we'll talk a little bit about this. I think when we do your number four, in doing that, it becomes like a different movie. Mm. It's it it has certain beats that it's non adherence to certain genre qualities allows it to kind of be something else. And like the casting of Dan Stevens, Dan, Dan Stevens' performance, um, and then some, uh, you know, even like the Michael Monroe, she's in that, right? That's her? Who's oh, the, yeah, yeah, Michael Monroe. Yeah. Um, I heard Michael Monroe, and I was like, Michael, Michael Monroe. Michael Monroe. Um, yeah, Michael Monroe is 100% in that movie. Even like the stuff she is doing is, is it, it turns into a different kind of thing. The first active boss level seems like it doesn't tr- there it is it that movie trusts its viewers to understand what it's doing mm. whether what it's doing is good quote unquote or um, or genre um, Adam Wingard trusts his viewers to understand mm. like what is happening and is not trying to force like a bunch of narrative conceits down everybody's throat um, or, or or just kind of some hokey narrative moves down everybody so just like for the sake of for the sake of doing it and that's where I think the first act really bugs me and then the the third act I think is just is just not as fun as the second act that's right I mean I think which is which is not to say that it's bad I think it ties it up pretty good and it's funny um, it just it doesn't have the same energy because everything's stopped you know what I mean yeah he even takes like half of the fun stuff was him not flying in a helicopter directly where he needed to go, and then all of a sudden he manages to, like, somehow get inside the <laughs> helicopter, which I thought was, like, a great, like, magician's trick. I was like, how did you not... How, in all these other attempts, how have you not thought, like, I could, I could get in that helicopter? I could do it. Didn't come to him. He's hung over. I suppose that's, I suppose that's true, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. No, I, yeah, and I, I think I think the thing that's nice, I would agree um, that, you know, the opening is kind of a little rote with this genre. But I think 
I, I think the the solidness of that second act, and then you know, still the fun of of the. I still like the first act just because of doing those things that I enjoy. I um, wish I could like the. First, I mean, I'm not like I said. I'm not sorry. But I wish I could like the first yeah. act more, because then I wouldn't have felt like for a half hour like, ugh, like why are they keep doing this? Why do all, why are all these killers like caricatures of something? And then like. You don't even really well, need doing it. smoking aces stuff once again, right? But just, just you don't have to do that. And like, I think it's weird because the Guan Yin character is like the only one I like. But it's also because she's the only one we and Pam. But they're the only two we we get to With know any it all. Sort of depth, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I think it's funny. The Michelle Yeoh thing is is really amusing that she's just kind of there. And she's like a sword fighting expert. Yeah, I thought she was going to be a little bit bigger of a person. No. She's but, just there. Yeah. She's just eating at a diner at the, or at a restaurant, and then she's teaching him how to sword fight. Yeah. For an hour, however many dozens of times it takes. So, Not many times. He really becomes an expert sword fighter pretty quickly. Well, I think that's one of the interesting things about this movie is that we're not even like in a year. So I think one of the, a lot of these movies, when they do this kind of repeating time stuff, you don't like, necessarily know how. Like it's the oh, original it could be a lot of time script for Groundhog Day was like ten thousand years, right? And I think the same thing is in question in something like Palm Springs, where people are like, I don't know how many oh, how that, many years this movie, is. That's going a movie on. that does the Groundhog Day thing. That yeah, I completely forgot that I don't like. Yeah, exactly. One that doesn't do it. Um, well, so to be fair to this movie, which I think this movie is way more fun than. Palm Springs. Oh, no. Like, times a million. And I think the ways in which this movie makes no sense are better than the ways in which Palm Springs makes no sense. Like, the fact that Christina Milioti just disappears for, like, a third of the movie. Which is the worst thing that Which is... Exactly. Which is... Because then it's just an Andy Samberg movie, and nobody wants that. Nobody. Not even Andy Samberg. Not even the Golden Globes. And those (laughs) people are idiots. Yeah. Well, we'll be right back. With my number four. Welcome back. Man, Tom, that was a, a hefty break we took there. A couple, couple minutes longer than our usual break in between the A block that, and the That apple, apple, the sour apple, whatever, hit us, hit us bad. Yeah, so bad that we went... We passed out and went forward two days. <laughs> well, speaking of which, Tom, because it is oh, yeah, that's weird. because it is two days later, because mm-hmm. it's Friday now that we're recording this, the night before, guys, you're hearing us less than, I mean, if you're an early adopter, you're hearing us like 12, 16 hours before we usually, you know, usually hear us days ago. We could be long dead. I know. We must sound very fresh. Yeah. Like they're waking up and they're like instantly listening to us and like, whoa. Alert, crisp. It's like an apple. Um, but we ha- so we had, you know, some some bad apple beers. Which uh, as that beer warmed up, it wasn't so great. It was fine. Yeah, but I thought we'd get a second beer for fun because it's two days later, mm-hmm. and it relates kind of to my movie in the sense of uh, one of the. The antagonist's name is Harry Lime in my movie. Ooh, yeah, and, that's a good one. Well, we can have a key lime pie sour. Ah, oh, from Smutty Nose, five point five percent. Mario, can I just say I think we've established where we gotta go with the rest of this podcast. 
Which is sours. Which is sours. We've been drinking a lot of sours. I think, I think for our number ones, we should choose beers that we think are going to be excellent. Or that we love. Yeah. And, maybe it's... But, like, I would definitely agree with the three and... Well, except for my three. Except for yours, yeah. Three and two, would, I'd be fine with that. I, I just poured it in my mustache. Does that taste good? No. Burns. Is this an otter? Otter, what? I mean by otter. What's that? Oh. I think that's a cat. It's like an otter. Could be an otter. What's it doing there? Um, I like it a lot. It's very limey. And it's got a bit of that cream. I don't know what's, what's necessarily in it. I don't think there's any lactose. There's no lactose in it because they would say if there was lactose in it. I like the Oh, lime. here it is. Oh, it does say. <laughs> it is uh, key lime puree, vanilla extract, caramel color. I've never seen a beer that had to add color. Yeah, why? Um, probably just didn't. It must have looked horrible. It must have been like clear or brown or something. Um, and lactose. I mean, it definitely tastes like a liquid key lime pie. I wish I wish there was like a graham body to it. I don't know how you get graham cracker. Mm. But some beers have gotten that graham cracker taste. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't say to myself this needs a graham cracker taste, but I said to myself it needs something because that that key, that creaminess is kind of hollow. It's just like a, this little. It's like a it's like a dot, and then it's then it's gone. But I love. I think it tastes pretty good. Yeah. But it needs some it needs some support somewhere. Yeah, it needs a body. Yeah. It's kind of. It's just tastes like eating the key lime pie. It tastes like eating key lime pudding, kind of drinking key lime pudding is that bad and I, think I, do, I prefer it to the sour apple and here's what i'll say this is a sour it's a lime so it's inherently more sour but this is a sour where that sourness is really bright and really in your face and it does stay with right you. like that, the sourness of it stays that with sour you. apple stuff was just kind of like sour and then i'm gone you know what, you know what this tastes like though kind of it kind of tastes like a, a sour lime jolly rancher with mm, like a little little bit like a little creaminess. To it, it is good though. I actually like. I've taken three sips. The second and third sip went down a little easier than the than the first one. Yeah. The first one, when you have that like that first initial hit of the of the the pie flavoring, you're kind of like, well, that's a different. This was a sixteen dollar four pack though. I wish it was a little less. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at least it wasn't like twenty one dollars. Yeah, that's true. I think that's reserved just for IPAs for the and most pretentious stouts. of all beers. Yeah, and stouts. Yeah. Where's somebody you knows from? That should be New Hampshire. Yep, it's uh, Hampton, New Hampshire. There you go. So, you know, that's... It's perfect. It's perfect, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, my number four, as I pretty well ex- described um, by saying Harry Lime. If, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know it's the third man. Vienna, 1950. A city fearful of its present, uncertain of its future. Vienna, the once gay capital of a light-hearted people. Here in the shadows of its palaces and ruins is told with tenderness, drama, and suspense. The story of the third man. There was a third man there. I suppose that doesn't sound peculiar to you. I'm not interested in whether a racketeer like Lyme was killed by his friends or by an accident. The only important thing is that he's dead. Third Man, the story of two men and one woman caught in the dangerous web of an international love affair. Oh, please, for heaven's sake, stop making him in your image. 
Harry was real. He wasn't just your friend and my lover. No, I don't know. I'm just a hack writer who drinks too much and falls in love with girls. You? Me? Don't be such a fool, of course. The third man. Joseph Cotton in his most successful performance as an American caught in a whirlpool of continental intrigue. The glamorous valley is the mysterious Viennese actress who knew the secret of the third man. You know, for the longest time, um, I, when, I was, when I was younger, because I saw this, so... The first time I saw The Third Man, um, and I'm not going to do a plot description, because you've probably seen it, and I don't care to do a plot description. If you have, if you haven't seen it, you know, just drunk guy, drunk you American goes it. to see his friend. His friend's dead. Wow, what? His friend's not really dead. His friend's involved in some black market stuff. Like a dickhead oh, American, you know. he decides, I'm going to solve the mystery. And then everyone's like, there's no mystery. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to solve it. Um... And eventually, you know, they they get on a they get on a Ferris wheel, and then they get in the sewers, and then there's walking. That's the third man. That's the best plot description of the third man. Uh, I remember when I when I saw this though, I kind of similar to you in your thousand dollar Criterion spree. Um, mm. Me, my friend, and I. Um, wanted to be like pretentious film people two two of my friends and i wanted to be pretentious film people in high school so we started like this real deep dive into every yeah. black and white film we could or every sort of classic film that we could um and i remember for the longest time i don't know how this happened but i thought joseph cotton and lawrence harvey were the same person <laughs> and i convinced myself I don't know how. <laughs> Joseph Cotton was in Third Man, and then later, twenty some years, almost you know, what, not twenty years, like thirteen years later, got younger looking. Yep. And then was Lawrence Harvey. It happens. Yeah. Uh, I'm not gonna waste time on like the the body of this film. I think there's an entire film scholarship about the third man that, that can more eloquently and intelligently describe like the ethos of this film and, and the reason why it has you know such a profound effect on cinema mm-hmm. um as you said there's hallmark directors who have mentioned how great the third man is i'm just going to talk about you know what the third man did for me mm-hmm. Because that's what matters in the life, right? In this life. In no, the life in, of this podcast. In everyone's lives, what happens to Mario is what matters. Yeah. People don't I think realize in, that. I think in every other instance it's what happened to me. But I think in this case, yeah. Both of us. Sure. Only People only exist. We're, we're, was it Solipist or whatever? That think only... You only exist to serve us. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, the people that are outside on the highway are going nowhere. They're just driving in circles because they know highway noises add good ambiance to the podcast. To the podcast, yeah. Right. They exactly. got nowhere to go. We're here. Where could they go? 
Yeah, exactly. They're probably they're driving by to see if they could see into. They're like they see the light and like, oh, what's going on in there? They haven't invented hovercrafts yet. So I don't know how can't. they see the light from the highway because we're, you know, hundreds of stories in the air. But I don't know. It's crane their neck, I guess. Maybe. Um, I just going through the kind of run of older films and i'd i'd had those older films that i had kind of responded to weirdly enough you know the weather like the withering heights um and then like jane Eyre, mm-hmm. some of those films older films um cabinet dr caligari you know bausch and potemkin these are films i responded to but the classic film that was few and far between i still kind of felt a real distance especially to like the the per- pertinent classics I still don't like Casablanca. There's something about it that I just well, we could talk. Don't I mean, get close to There's honestly, something... yeah, that's something we could bring up when we do my, like talk about mine. Also, is that I think there's in a lot of ways there's too much. It's just too classic. Yeah, for you to get close enough to feel any way about it, other than like that's fine, I guess. Cool. Yeah, I think I think that's it. I think I think there's their products like kind of of their time in mm-hmm. a way. Um, and when I thought saw Third Man, you know, it just hit me on every level, and it kind of allowed me to kind of afterwards have an appreciation for the classics I would see after it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a big thing about this film that maybe he's not really discussed about because everyone wants to talk about like you know the Dutch angles and it's heart of German Specialism is that ultimately the way this film beats is by trying to be entertaining when it slows down something happens like you know Holly getting punched in the face to bring it back up for mm-hmm. a second um, it is not a film you know, it, has, it has a lot of those kind of like Hitchcock undercurrents where it won't just be slow and consistently slow for the sake of doing that, for the sake of exposition. When it's doing that, it's throwing something in there to mm-hmm. kind of, like, drive it up. It, you know, I don't know if that's the Selznick of it. Because um, Selznick was just good at realizing people are idiots in the audience mm-hmm. and need that. Um, but this has, like, a, a energy to it that wasn't really... That I didn't pick up on a lot of films. And in a lot of ways... You know, in a similar way, um, I do respond to just it, the nature of it. Just having been somebody who's so utterly in love with kind of the German expressionist thing, mm-hmm. this film takes that to like the tenth degree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this this is. It, it sounds so dispassionate because it's uh, this particular discussion of it here, because it just seems so. Typical? It seems not so typical, but it seems so obvious. Does that does that make sense? Why like, it's good, or why you would why, be why attracted it's good. to it? Why it's like a combination of why it's good and the things in which it's doing in the build up to talking about this podcast, like in the episodes before. You know, I feel like I'd be repeating myself by saying like episodes from Double Indemnity. And mm-hmm. um, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Metropolis and all these things I I bring up 
the aspects of the film or, you know, going back to Phantom Thread and how pivotal the music is in that. All these things coalesce kind of here. They're all doing those things here. Mm -hmm. And to kind of repeat it sounds like... Well, but it's a good place. Maybe it's... I mean, maybe it's, you know... Because you had men, you had texted me about like your top four and what they all, what three out of the four have in, in common, and I was just like, well, yeah, I'd already kind of noticed, I'd already kind of noticed that, and I one of the things I noted is that um, there's a lot of this, you got a lot of this stuff on your on your list, you know what I mean? You have a lot of, I mean, printed out your list <laughs> thus far. Oh, is that all the noir? Well, it's, so you it's, highlighted? yeah, it's all the stuff that kind of leans towards the towards the noir without being like very specifically noir. Mm. And so, forty seven percent of your list, which we can say, defi- I you know, it's it's out of a hundred, so I can okay. definitively say, um, is is not necessarily noir, but is definitely is rule oriented. Oh, rule oriented, yeah. Because I was looking at this going like. I don't know about green room and scream. Right, but they're not necessarily they're not noir in like the traditional noir sense, but they do adhere to um so like you have noir, you have horror, um, you have like some sci fi horror element things in there, which you can kind of lump into a bunch of different things. Is I when in the nature in and like the trajectory of your 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 film watching, does this like define anything specific for you because it's it's your number four versus like everything else which is like lower than it did this is this like the most something did this have like a like a kind of outsized so, like foundational thing was it one of those things is, where it took like the german expressionism and then some of the other stuff that you had watched like more the more modern stuff and you were like well this is like the synthesis of those things and then it kind of goes out from there and that's the thing i think what I respond to in this film is the fact that all these and I was trying to try and mention this all these facets of of films I like of, of things I like in film you know the the relation of music to the action on screen the noir German expressionist types of angles you know a lot of films that I've had on my list kind of do one or two of those things um, the the strength of performances um, you know, outside of Joseph Cotton's fine, but everyone else in this is like really operating on every level. Um, you know, a, a tight screenplay, you know, these things that I'm mentioning in passing all kind of like coalesce here. And especially with the noir genre, I've, I've always kind of like the core, like the core noir. Mm-hmm. I've always felt like there's something missing. Sometimes there's like a double indemnity kind of has like a flat score. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some flat supporting performances. Uh, Strangers on a Train has kind of like a lull leading into its third act. That's a little... Sure does. You know. <laughs> sure does. So there's always these things that are like holding back the film, those films from op- blasting off on every level. Manchurian mm-hmm. uh, Can, it's the one I said it gets the closest, but I just don't... I don't think... Well, because it's the so- Frank Sinatra performance is really blowing things out of the water and um it's also too experimental in a lot of ways it's 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 noir but it's also 
very modern. Well, it's funny that you though that's an interesting one because so the two things that you had mentioned the Phantom Thread before, and you were talking about like music in relationship with the action on screen and stuff like that. And I feel like the Manchurian Candidate is kind of a good example of that too, not necessarily that exact point, but the idea of one of the things that I've always kind of found fascinating about the Third Man is the way that like this score is so highly regarded, and it's you know it's sold like millions of copies and it made this guy famous and it's so it's such like a key score to to film you know what i mean but it's never i've never got it although i i've also tried to imagine this movie like on a number of times without with like a different score i'm just like well that wouldn't work no you know what i mean like a traditional noir like dun 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 but i was like that's not that doesn't that doesn't make any sense either like what i so what i oh so good works about the score for And it's nice to see that score, hear that score that's always like, the Zither's really upbeat and kind of happy and like, you know, yeah. you wanna, um, and you compare it to what you're seeing on screen and to what's happening. The fact that like there is a black market for penicillin, you know, that like destroyed Europe yeah. under yeah. the Truman Doctorate sort of thing and needs penicillin and black market. You know, it's it it works on that level because it's kind of pulling back the veil of like America doesn't really know what the fuck um, the modern the normal American who didn't really go to war or if they did you know maybe didn't see a lot of action and forgot about it you know didn't realize what the fuck happened and it is what is still happening mm-hmm. um, well, as Europe is rebuilding and that's why I think that score works so well well and I think it points though to like what you mentioned about the Manchurian Candidate being too experimental. I think one of the things, one of the reasons this movie works so well is because it does seem... But this seem... isn't a fault. It's too, no, just, no, 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 no. It's, it's Experimental makes it not its noir. Right, but it also makes it more, it makes it more interesting. So some of the other stuff, like you were watching old movies and you kind of, you know, you, you had the stuff on your list that's old, but like anything else you were kind of struggling to get into, you mentioned Casablanca before. There's nothing experimental about Casablanca. No. It's just a regular movie that happens to have like a really good script, I guess. The same, the same issue I don't with know, like I don't Gone know with to, the Wind, which we right. canceled, luckily. Which is fine, because um, Gone with the Wind is but, stupid. But You know, it's, it's a film that's not doing, outside of like Vivian Lee being great in it, it's not doing anything else. Those things are classics. So when people were just like, well, cancel Gone with the Wind, I was just like, yeah, cancel Gone with the Wind. Because you can never cancel Gone with the Wind. It's Gone with the Wind. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you can't get rid of it. It's become... But it's also just a regular movie. And I guess there's a whole bunch of people that are big Gone with the Wind fans that could point to all these reasons why Gone with the Wind is, like, the most experimental movie ever. But I think when you watch something like The Third Man, you're just like, this is weird. There's nothing about this movie that's, like, regular. This seems like... This idiot Joseph Cotton is playing. Oh, a uh, Holly. I don't know. I can, can never remember his name. I'm just, <laughs> I just thought you were saying <laughs> yeah, yeah. that Joseph Cotton was an idiot. No, no, but he plays this idiot. Yeah. And he's like walking through like a bombed out country, which is filmed in like, you know, the Roger Ebert book is kind of like where I, all the information I got about this thing, you know, 
Carol Reed wanted to film in a bomb, like in bombed out Europe. He didn't want to film on sound stages. He wanted the actual yeah, Selznick destruction. Wanted, wanted it on sound stages. Right. And that's just and it, there. So there's this weird feeling. There's this weird air going through everything. There's all that stuff, and there's all of those real things actually happening. And then Holly is just kind of trying to solve this one, this one stupid thing for this guy who like. This cop cares about because he just tried to, you know, sociopathically try to kill a bunch of people and was, like, involved in the black market. And it's also his job. It's not Holly's job to do anything. But that just, the the futility of what he's doing seems also very experimental to me. It's all, it's, the whole film reeks of, like, classic weirdness. Mm. And I wonder if, like, when you, when I look, like, back at your list... It does seem like it's the movie that's doing all the rules the right way, maybe because it wrote the rules, but is also weird enough to be more interesting than all of those th- those other movies. Yeah, and are ballsy enough, I guess. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, that's a good you one. You know, like, like Reed fighting kind of against that, that tide. Um, that's the thing, like, there's a real, like, authenticity to it in the fact that, like, it doesn't feel like you're you're on a soundstage. It feels like... Even though, like, clearly a lot of those shots are very carefully orchestrated to, sure. make, to make those shadows that long. Um, or that dark. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it still ends up working. But, like, because, like, it's so weird that the choice of the ending is just to, like, like, what was it? Joseph Cotton thought the shot was over. And yeah. Reed's just like, I'm just going to keep shooting. <laughs> but how does that not, like, it never gets talked about, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but, like, there's a super Lawrence of Arabia feeling to that ending. Where it just takes her... I still haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia. I refuse to watch it until I can see it on on big screen. screen. But you know the shot I'm talking about, right? With the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot... I mean, how is that shot not a callback a little bit to that the end of, like, the third man somehow? Where she just sits... The camera just sits there and waits and waits and waits and she gets closer and 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 it just takes forever and he's just sitting and she there has to smoking. move off to the right because the camera's, the camera's in right front still of her. there exactly and then some, the movie just some ends some review I read said like she moves to the right to be further away from him fuck I'm that like, shit I can't no, do this shit anymore no she is moving to the right because the rigging is directly in front of her right it's and not, she has to it's not the naked gun <laughs> he's not gonna walk into the camera and be like oh jeez although which would be if Carol cool. Reed made that choice, I'd be like, nice. Not to turn this into a WandaVision podcast, but I'm so fucking done with all of these Reddit nerds trying to figure out like what's going to happen on WandaVision and then spending just hundreds it's of It's over. And none yeah, of the I, things that I, they thought were going to happen I happened. Never, I never finished it. But that's but none of the things they thought were going to happen happened. And everyone just overanalyzed the shit to just death. Stay being hot. Did that happen? Yeah. Because they're going to need it for other movies. Hmm. So she gets to live there. But what I'm... I don't know why people do that stuff. And I think that's one of the great things about this movie is that you can be like... you got to, I suppose, look at every single shot and be like, why is it at this angle and not this angle? And why is it like this? And I, it's, I'm pretty sure, like, those shots look like that because it's cool. Yeah. And because he thought it would be an effective shot. Not because, like, he was trying to say something specific about, like, and that's a, the nature of the universe or, is, like, or a characterization or something like which that. Which is something I respect about this, is a lot of this movie is just trying to be cool. And I think it so, works. too. I mean, like, I, think, I think Carol Reed was, like, I think Carol Reed's trying to say some stuff with, like, filming 
in Vienna and having a dumb American and having the score. Yeah, oh, yeah. But I think a lot of those shadows being long are just because it's cool. And I think, like, yeah, there's something to be said to, like, the Dutch angles being there to, like, kind of screw with the viewer and kind of realize, like, that's a weird, funky situation. But I also think he was like, oh, that's a reason I'm doing it. But I'm also doing it because it looks cool. Because he also does it all the time. Yeah. Even when, like, there isn't something that we should feel off-kilter about. Unless we should just feel off-kilter about everything, which we already do, because everything that Joseph Cotton thinks is wrong. <laughs> another <laughs> the whole another review I read said, like, oh, the camera kind of sways and, and floats back and forth during the Ferris wheel scene. Because it's showing the power shift back and forth. And I'm like, it's no. Ferris wheel. It, they're on a Ferris wheel, so it's probably trying to be like... When you're on a Ferris, those carriages do float back and forth. So it's probably trying to give you the illusion of you're on the Ferris wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I love how Roger Ebert is so, like, weirdly wrong. I love when Roger Ebert is wrong. When he just kind of misreads a movie, or I think he misreads a movie, when he talks about that Ferris wheel scene and how, like, um, you know, Joseph Cotton, like, hangs on to the door. And he kind of intimates it's like it's because he's afraid of falling out. And it's like, no, no, no. Just look at Orson Welles' eyes. Like, when he moves over to the door like that, he's, like, afraid of him. He's like, this guy is, like, getting super close to this open door. Like, he's now skeptical of, like, what this guy is willing to do to kind of, like, bring him down. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I guess the power could be shifting because, like, it's the nature of the thing. I'm pretty sure, though, it's just... It, the movie would be... Even in 1949, people would be pretty skeptical of a Ferris wheel scene that was just, like... A flat Ferris wheel just kind of doing nothing. Even though everybody at that in those times had been on a Ferris wheel a lot of times and they don't just sit there. Yeah. Too completely static. No, it, and that's the thing. Like, this movie just is... It's cool. It's a lot of doing cool stuff. It is cool. It's real cool. I don't have anything else. Yeah, me either. It's not a lot to say about the third man. Well, I mean, there. I mean, I guess if we wanted to, there is tons. I mean, there's to say tons of stuff to say it, but like, but like, what's the? We don't. We never feel like repeating. There's better videos out there. There's better reviews. There's people who have spent their film scholarship, like their entire pedigree and years of college, is probably baked into like hundreds of pages of thesis on the third man yeah and i'm kind of feeling over like some of that stuff also i am too but it's just like i will at least say that they probably they probably they probably got it right yeah in some capacity but you know they also probably made a lot of assumptions based on like you know whatever the thesis of their of their essay or article or whatever is you know what i mean yeah exactly um and they're assuming things based on like shadows and and lighting cues and like the side like I loved Roger Ebert saying like oh that the guy with the balloon looks like he's a monster he's like three yeah, stories like, so I was like I guess he just has like, a long shadow I'm pretty sure they weren't scared of monsters <laughs> like, although could you imagine like that twist had been in that film like Scottzilla no it's just was like a balloon monster who's <laughs> that guy no it, was, it turns out it was like, like that Harry rock. Lime and Holly have to work together and the the officer have to work together to defeat this balloon monster yeah I'm cool with that how does he what does he do does he tie balloons around people's necks and they float up no you see he just he creates he makes yeah he, no he makes the person go into the balloon oh. and then it floats up and then he pop and that pops oh. and they fall there'd be a really great scene where like Holly and Harry are kind of like tense and all of a sudden 
Oh, that would be good. And then... You know, they... Uh, Roger Ebert talked about remaking. Like, there was a remake of The Third Man. I think they should let us remake The Third Man. It's you know why? combination of It and The Third Man. Because we would just do that. That'd be a cool shot. The Fourth Man. How cool would that shot be? Like, there's be a, a, a standoff between, like, the, the you know, Holly... Harry and the, the officer, and then all of a sudden, like, bodies just collapsing on the cobblestone. You get, like, that good, you know, in Bruges gore when, when Brendan Gleeson yeah. falls, you know, so, like, legs separating and all that. Yep. And then they realize that there's a bigger force they have to team up. Like, but Or the third man was inside Brendan Gleeson. He's just a smaller man. I thought you were going to say the real prize was the third man inside us all along. <laughs> Oh, uh, be like so an like, MIB sequel. Was the little aliens are inside? Was that guy. there the third a third man? I have a question. Is there any? I haven't done like that much research on this film. Is there any kind of um, argument over what happens at the end of the movie? Like, does he shoot? Uh, he shoots Harry Lime, right? Yeah, that's why I, I don't think there's any arguments. Okay. I just thought it'd be cool if he didn't shoot him. Well, I just feel like if this movie came out in 2021, there'd be like whole internet sites devoted to the idea that like he didn't shoot Harry Lime and like what Harry Lime did where he was in relation to all the other shots that happened for the rest of the movie probably right but Ignor- I think ignoring in- the fact that like he gets buried again so they're more going to bury the wrong guy twice you think, yeah you think they would be like we have the Torps and Wells <laughs> yeah unlike the first time when they were just like I don't know it's a guy or it's a nope. It's nobody. I've always, I've always assumed they just didn't know what he looked like. Maybe, maybe. I just assume someone guy named Harry Lyme looks like Orson Welles. Like this guy doesn't look like. Or Harry Lyme. Jeff Daniels. Does he play Harry Lyme in the remake? He could play her. Yeah, I think it'd be a good. That'd be a good re- guys. Got to send us money. We got to do it. Yeah. We could Who do plays it. the balloon man? You know what I'm thinking? Check this out. Clive this- Owen. Oh, close. I mean, the, the first three letters of the first name were the same of what I was thinking. Clint Howard. <laughs> That'd be good. Clint Howard would be good. Right? No one would see it coming. Yeah. I mean, unless you've seen Ice Cream Man, then you'd definitely see it coming. He was 100% the villain in that. Um, yeah, that'd be good. He presents an uh, ice cream cone to somebody with a decapitated head on it. It's nice. That sounds like somebody who would put people in balloons. Yeah. It sounds like also somebody who wouldn't work that hard. Putting people in balloons seems like a lot of hard work for someone who's just going to cut off somebody's head no, and put just, it on an ice cream cone. This is magically. I just oh, imagine so there's magically. More magic. Yeah. Yeah, that means. Like that, to I, be a balloon. It's, it's one of the things that's really missing from this movie currently is magic. <laughs> it's not enough. Not enough. Do, 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 do. <laughs> You can even time the score with, like, the plopping bodies. <laughs> yeah, they would totally do that. Genius. I think we did it. Yeah, that's uh, probably the best music we're going to hear all day, Tom. Right. Maybe. Maybe. Um, we'll see, though. We'll see when we uh, talk about my number four. Oh, so he's four championships? He's won four, yeah. Jesus. Two with the Heat, one with the Cavs, Cavs and then one, one with, with the Lakers. 
He, he should keep switching teams. He no, he wants to, to play. He should go to the Trailblazers. He next. wants to play with his son. So his son is a junior, I think, in high school. The son should go to the Trailblazers. I yeah. want to see the Trailblazers win a championship. Nah, they're never going to win a championship. They wouldn't know what to do with themselves if they won a championship. If LeBron went to the Trailblazers, we should just keep this in the pocket. I'm keeping it. If LeBron went to the Trailblazers, they could probably win a championship there. They probably could. Kevin Love would come back. No, not come back. Uh, who was on the trail? But uh, Damian Lillard. He's still there. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know Lamarcus Aldridge. I was thinking of um, Milwaukee for Kevin Love. Kevin Love is on the Timberwolves. Yeah, he's in Minnesota. Minnesota. Then after he wins with the Tim- uh, after he wins with the Trailblazers, he goes to Minnesota. Well, so some teams are just too bad, and they're never going to be good even if LeBron is on them. Are the Timberwolves? The Timberwolves and- are one of those teams. The Trailblazers as well? No, the Trailblazers might be Because they always good. make it to like the second round. Because LeBron needs LeBron and Damian Lillard need the ball too much. And so like that would not work. Maybe they, because can, hold, maybe they can share the ball. Like they can run they can like dribble it together. <laughs> That'd be Is awesome. that double dribbling? If it's two guys, Ooh. one hand from each guy. I don't know. Adam Silver, tweet us if that's if that's double dribbling. He'll be the one person that does tweet at us. <laughs> and we're like we don't actually care. <laughs> oh no, Adam Silver, you misinterpreted <laughs> our our actual interest in this this problem. We'll point doing the actual bylaw in the rule book, <laughs> and then we just send him an we just send him a text. Go like, what's your opinion of Piranha Two? <laughs> and then he just sends us like this law. He just sends us his like letterbox, and we're like, <laughs> can you oh, no? Can you get send us some money so we could make the fourth man? <laughs> you know, deuced by Adam Silver. Mm. I have to have some NBA players in it then. Kyrie <laughs> no. Irving could be in it because we know he can act. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, Ray Allen. Ray Allen, Shaq, all those guys could be in it. be pretty great. Although I, I would imagine Adam Silver like would sit there and be like, I need Jim Rash to be the lead. Who? Jim Rash from Community. and I didn't watch Oscar, Community. Oscar winner for uh, The Descendants because he wrote that. Oh, that guy? Yeah, the bald guy. I don't think so. Because he looks like Adam Silver. Oh, maybe. I thought Nate Faxon won. Nate Faxon? Nate Faxon and Jim Rash won. What? So they many people together. like rode those coattails. I hate when Nate Faxon's in stuff. <laughs> He's not great. But I like I, Jim Rash. But then I think to myself, like, wow, he has an Oscar. That sucks. I think Jim Rash got nominated for another Oscar. No. <sighs> Like for producing or something like that for the moment. Mario, you are saying not good things tonight. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, he co-directed Downhill. Oh, boy. <laughs> With Nate Faxon. What? Not getting an Oscar for that one, guys. <laughs> they did not. I wonder if they go into, like, studio offices to, like, pitch stuff. They're like, we want Oscars. And they're like, no, no, you didn't. <laughs> You have them, but you didn't win them. Anyway, I feel like we've piled on Jim Rash and Nate Faxon enough for for tonight. Anything? I mean, do you have anything else to say? To, uh, either they, of them? Just, you, you would agree Adam Silver and Jim Rash look, look yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, I'm a pro of that. So we'll have to find a way. We'll, we'll put him in the movie. We'll, we'll get him. Yeah, I don't know how, but we haven't written it yet. He can play the police officer. Which one? The guy that punches... Yeah. That's just like, ba-ding. and I like there's a bell. Ba-ding. It's great. We'll, we'll sasso to play our Holly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Now we love Will Sasso. I've always liked Will Sasso, but now he's great. Yeah. Because he got a sword in his head and it's just like, what, what am I going to do? And he went, Aah. That was actually the worst part of that movie to go back to something that we said, talked about two days ago, but it's actually in, in podcast time, like an hour ago. That, I felt that in my brain. Like when he started shaking his head with the sword in it, I was like, "No, stop doing that!" Oh, because it can feel like, the sword. Yeah, 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 that's that's no good. That's not a good thing. Do you think he still smelled blueberry muffins after that, or do you think it made it raspberry muffins? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know, Mario. Um, we got very off topic, and we should get on topic real fast. My number four is uh, the 1984 film by Milos Forman, uh, Amadeus. <laughs> us about Voskan. Amadeus. Mozart. Mozart. Mozart? <laughs> How good is he, this Mozart? He's remarkable. He's an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat. I'm a vulgar man. But I assure you, my music is not. He is divinely inspired. He is arrogant, vulgar, obscene. He creates music for the gods. He is passionate. He burns with fire. He is an angel. He is a devil. He claimed he'd been poisoned. Some said he accused a man. Some said the man was Salieri. Salieri? Salieri. I don't believe it. All the same. Looks like a pretty modern trailer. It's a pretty stupid trailer. Yeah, but it's fairly modern. Yeah. I, I love the idea... I love this trailer because it presents Amadeus as, like, a kind of murder mystery. Like, did... Or did not Salieri murder Mozart? As if that's the single most important thing that happens in this movie. It was, right? Like that, that's how I watched this movie. You did? Mm-hmm. You were just like, oh, it's, it's all I, leading up to it. I thought it was Jeffrey Jones the entire time. Mm. <laughs> well, there it is. Um, Amadeus. Uh, one of those ones that kind of swept all the Oscars. If there was more than one woman in it, may, or two women in it that had real roles, maybe it could have won another one, been nominated for one uh, of those female performances. Then it could have been like, you know, Milos Forman's other movie that ran the table there, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Which one, you know, picture, actor, actress, director, and, and, and uh, adapted screenplay. This one also won picture. Actor, adapted screenplay, and director. I don't know who, who won Best Actress that year. I feel like it was like a Jessica Lange year. What about that? I don't know. I don't know. Keep, keep talking doesn't matter. about it, you know. Um, I suppose it doesn't matter. Uh, it was adapted from Peter Schaefer's uh, 1979 play, which apparently is very different from this. Um, I guess for people who don't... I mean, I guess this is another... For me, this seems like it would be another third man thing where everybody has some kind of vague... Sally Field. Oh, for... Places places in the heart. Yeah. Yeah. Was Jessica Lange nominated for For something? Country. Places... What? Jessica Lange was nominated for Country. Oh. I've seen that movie. Just country? Yeah, it's called country. I can't even um, guess Judy what that Davis is about. Judy Davis was also nominated that year for a Passage to India. I like Judy Vanessa, Davis. Yeah, I do too. Vanessa Redgrave for the Bostonians, and Sissy Spacek for the River. Huh, that's an interesting, interesting year. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I guess that Jessica Lange thing, right? Um, yeah, I just <laughs> assume that everyone knows what Amadeus is about, but I guess if you don't know, it's about uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It uh, is told from the perspective of. Uh, Salieri, who is a uh, compo- who's a court composer to the um, 
uh, to Emperor Joseph II of Austria. And he, um, and it's about, it's about their rivalry. It's about like uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, and I guess, if, you know, the only way to detail the plot is to go kind of through the whole machinations of how it works. But uh, needless to say, Salieri kind of comes up with this scheme to kind of punish God for giving um, Mozart, who he perceives as this, like, vulgar child, um, this this gift that he covets for himself, um, that he, in the end, spoiler alert, that uh, he succeeds in a way, uh, while not necessarily acting out his grand plan of having uh, Mozart write his own death mass and then presenting that mass as his own work and having it played at Mozart's thing under his name, this, you know, the greatest piece of music ever, and he didn't write it, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, does, the fact that it doesn't come to fruition doesn't change the fact that he has, you know, murdered this guy, and then he, you know, he tries to take his own life as, you know, he puts a pen through his neck or something. Um, then he's put in a great Francisco de Goya-esque insane asylum, which is, I think, feel like was perfectly realized for, you know, a late... Uh, <clears throat> what's that 16th century like insane asylum love it also you didn't mention that you got a great vincent chill of billy performance right there who's he which one is he uh his servant like when they're oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 he's another one of the, he's one of those guys like i know that guy i don't know his name but he's in lots of stuff oh, i knew it he's a ghost and he's in batman right yeah and but ghost he's creating ghosts that's true i never liked ghost i don't either but i like his performance as a subway ghost Mm. I should watch Ghost again. I always just remember how that guy dies, with like the gla- like the window falling on him. That was pretty rough when you were a kid. Yeah, it was rough with him getting pulled into hell. That was pretty rough too. That's yeah, scary as shit. It's a we- Ghost is a weird movie because it has all those. Touches. I didn't mean to distract from. No, 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 no. Actually, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to have a conversation about Ghost like in here. Ghost is weird because it has all those, like it's just like a romance. You know what I mean? And yeah. like a fairly steamy romance at that, but it has this really violent passages in it as well and just like horrifying stuff. If I was interested in talking to my parents more about these things, I would have like asked them how they felt about watching Ghost. Like, was it ana- did it seem anachronistic to what the rest of the movie was about? You know, you know directed that movie, right? Ghost? Yeah. I always loved that this was the case. I don't know who. Oh, it was it was directed by Jerry Zucker. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I don't know. We'd have to go back and watch Ghost. I mean... I'm so sad he didn't get a director nomination that year. They would never give Jerry Zucker a director nomination. I mean, he got nominated for Best Picture. Sure, but it's Jerry Zucker. He then used... Didn't he use Ghost in an airplane? Sure, in a I'm Naked sure. Gun movie? I'm sure. I'm yeah, sure yeah, he, yeah, did. he did. He had Naked Gun 2 and a half. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great, right? <laughs> That's so weird. Um... But I feel like Milos Forman might do something like that, too. No. Like, he might refer to one of his classic, you know... I mean, not anymore, but yeah. Not anymore, yeah. Maybe there's some Larry Flint stuff. There's some Amadea stuff with Larry Flint. Who knows? Um, he just died, too, by the way. Larry mm-hmm. Flint. Which is weird, because I thought Larry Flint had been dead. Maybe, too. For a while. So, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, there's a lot of things here with Amadeus. It's my number four. It has a lot of kind of history. Um, I have a lot of history with it. A lot of different feelings about it that we'll go through. Part of me was tempted to kind of toss this to you first, like a sneak attack. Um, 
and then just kind of like and then just kind of like dismantle your your feelings <laughs> about Amadeus but I won't um I first got introduced to Amadeus in middle school uh the music teacher showed it to us and I thought it was really great I thought as like a budding music kid who grew up around music not classical music rock music um and who was listening to a lot of rock music watching a lot of MTV um sending away for CDs from Columbia House and BMG and then just like you know admitting to my dad I don't know how this works please pay the $75 I don't know Santana or Braxis <laughs> Santana Brax. Oh my god, I love that part so much. I almost wanted to watch that. I want to watch that movie and just like watch that part. And I know that's what YouTube is for, but I like watching. The, I feel like you need the whole movie because for that to have the weight, like hearing like I owe money for Santana Abraxas, um, to have that weight. Um, so I was all I was all in um, at that point. I'm I, I'm I have a lot of vivid memories of like uh, that music class. So we did we had to like present. We'd give like a presentation about music once, and I like just taped a the video from Bush's Machine Head off of like MTV, and then I made a word search for people to do while like they watched Machine Head, and like the word search was just lyrics to the song Machine Head. Um, and then I remember like going into like a, a, a class, and like they were talking about kid. The guys were talking about like Vitalogy, which is like Pearl Jam's third record, but I wasn't a Pearl Jam fan then. I was a Stone Temple Pilots fan. And I was like, oh, yeah, Vitalogy is cool. And they're like, you don't fucking know what Vitalogy is. And I was like, no, I don't. And I was so ashamed of myself. Was Stone Temple Pilots not cool? Uh, they weren't as cool as Pearl Jam. I think at the time Pearl Jam seemed fairly, like, uh, subversive. Really? I thought they were, like, super popular at the time. And Stone Temple Pilots, they, they were, weren't. They were popular, but they were kind of doing their, like, we don't want to be popular thing. So they were kind of like doing like driving people away. But we do, and we just want to get more money, sort of thing. Well, because right after that, they would do their Ticketmaster thing, where they wouldn't play a show for like they wouldn't play a show at a Ticketmaster venue for like a number of years because Ticketmaster Ticketmaster wouldn't adjust. They wouldn't do fixed pricing, and they wouldn't adjust any of their service charges. Oh, yeah. So they just kind of quit being a, like a like a what, a stereotypical band, so they could do. Because of, of, of money stuff. So they were totally just after money. But um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to kind of say like, we don't want to be famous. And then your album sells like 3 million copies the week it's it's released. I mean, that's just kind of like the definition of, of being famous. Um, so yeah, this music class, this guy was this guy, Mr. Bednarski. He was kind of a cool guy. I think he thought he was a cool guy. He played guitar. He had like dark shades and like a must, like a Fu Manchu type mustache. Am I allowed to say that? It's what it's called. Okay, I think one of those mustaches, but he wore like gray coats, you know. And uh, he he played guitar. He was he was a like an old school kind of blues rocker guy. Um, and he showed us this movie, and I don't even remember what the context is under which that he showed us this movie. Um, it does a Fu Manchu does not look like it's it's um, considered offensive. Well, I just don't know any other way to describe that mustache that's been traditionally described as that. But I suppose that it doesn't I'm really, open yeah. to the idea that it's not called that. It is a horseshoe mustache, but that's different. So yeah, but it's it doesn't have an alternate title. Okay. Well, if if there's a problem, I can go back and edit. It's let let me know. We're also owning it, like right now. Right. Like, right, if, right. If, if you have a better name for it, we'll take it. Yeah. You know, I mean, one one of the one of the ones that starts on your nose and goes down to it has tendrils. 
It has tendrils, sure. Um, But I loved it straight away. And I loved it for a lot of reasons. One of them is because it was so big. Uh, And one of them was because I really loved the performances. And it wasn't so much the performances in terms of like the classic sense of of acting. It was um, the way that they kind of informed how to uh, feel the music. So um, there is there are not a lot of scenes in film that have the same kind of power to me as when Salieri picks up that that um, that's the sheet music. When, when he's um, goes to see Mozart for the first time, and you know he catches Mozart in like the dining room in the banquet hall, chasing um, Constance under the table and stuff like that, and he he's like, oh my my music, and uh, he rushes back in, he directs the rest of it, and then later Salieri just kind of goes up to it and he like picks it up and he like the conceit that uh, Foreman does through the whole thing of like him being able to kind of hear it in his head you know what i mean which i suppose a composer at that time would be able to look at some sheet music and hear exactly what how it's supposed to work yeah the way that f murray abraham who is just fucking amazing in this movie kind of conveys the majesty of like what he is kind of hearing in his mind um has kind of stuck with me forever mozart directing all of mozart conducting all of his operas is fucking insane I mean, he makes those things seem like action movie stuff. So one of the reasons I wanted to, like, I put this movie on my list here, and one of the things I wanted to mention here is that, like, this is, like, my action movie. Like, it's a, it's a big movie, it's a spectacle, um, but the action is more, like... You know, is the conducting and is the 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 interacting with music and is like these these productions of stuff these really well, like long... entirely like Don Giovanni. Oh my scene god! Right? And just like how he's just wiped out and there's like nobody there and it's such a it's such like a great juxtaposition between um, like the first couple of operas. You know, what I mean, when he, yeah. when he when he the ending of the Marriage of Figaro and stuff like that, where he's um, he's just, you know, he's mouthing all the words and he's conducting this thing and behind him is just this whole court of Vienna is all dressed in, is all dressed in white and it's so lavish. And then those, you know, that production of Don Giovanni is just, there's nobody there. Everything is gray. He's just fucking wiped out, but he's flailing his arms all over the place. Even when, he, when later when he conducts the magic flute, he's like, kind of like about to pass out when he's doing it. Um, but he... You know, he keeps his arms flailing, and then eventually he does pass out. That shit affected me in a way that, like, I couldn't really process um, right away. But I knew that I really loved it, um, which is, I think, one of the things that you you think about a lot when you think about movies that you liked as a kid, and you, you try to figure out why. Um, and, but you can't even start with like you can't start with why. You have to start with like I liked it, and I liked it because of I liked it because of this. Subsequently, I've seen this movie like a million times. It's one of my comfort food movies. I love it. Um, I I can, you know, it's one of those things you can quote long passages of it. I know the whole movie by heart. I know when all the stuff is going to come, but it doesn't reduce the power of it. But it became one of those things. It became like a marker for me for people. So when I would go on, if I was dating a girl, there would always be a period early in the relationship where I'd be like, we're going to watch Amadeus tonight. 
And if they seem like more interested in me than watching Amadeus, then it was fucking done. Like, you couldn't say no to Amadeus. Which I stand by. We need more interested in you than Amadeus. Like, if they wanted, if they thought this was like a traditional date and that like we should like make out or talk or eat or something, I'd be like, no, you're out of here. Like, I wouldn't throw them out. But I'd be like, we're not going to date anymore because you don't like Amadeus. Did you do this with your wife? Yeah, she fell asleep. But I gave her a pass because she's my wife now. So there's obviously something. So, so it doesn't always. It didn't always. It doesn't always work. But there was a period where I was just like, you don't like Amadeus. What's the matter with you? Like, and I'm still Did like. Did she ever rewatch it? She hasn't. Well, she rewatched. She watched a little bit of this, but she went to bed <laughs> too when we were watching it. It's a long movie. <laughs> I went to bed halfway through it because it was like 12:30, and I was like, I'm fucking wiped. Um, but it, it's so, which I think is, when I think about that, I think, wow, you are an asshole. But I also think it became like this, um, personal kind of artistic touchstone for me. It really meant something about the way that we or the as the way that people relate to music but more specifically the way that i relate to music is that i i don't and i maybe have talked about this on the podcast and i know i've said it out loud to a bunch of people um i've and i've probably hinted at it other podcasts i don't i tend to not do stuff for fun like i don't like watch i tend to not watch movies for fun oh you talked about this earlier yeah. in the episode. And so, but, and so Bo- I, I always find something like Boss Level that I enjoy it so much. I think part of the reason I enjoy it so much is because I'm surprised by how much I enjoy it. Or when I start to enjoy it, I'm just like, oh, I kind of enjoy that. Like, cool. Um, I always go into movies like looking for something to kind of, to be, to be like Salieri a little bit and to be like changed somehow. To understand some kind of deeper knowledge of the universe just by, like, hearing a piece of music or reading a piece of music or, like, interacting with with um, some kind of music. And it's the same way with movies and it's the same way with books. But it started for me, like, at a very young age with with music. Like, I was not that my dad feels the same way that I do about, like, you know, um, he doesn't interact with music in the same way that I do. But he definitely, it was... You know, he didn't bring me up reading interesting books, although he did give me some interesting stuff. He didn't, like, sit me down and show me and say, like, this is an interesting movie. He did say, like, this is the best Beatles song. Or this is, um, this, I've seen this band a bunch of times. You should know them. Or, oh, you're interested in this? Here's a bunch more Genesis. How how much Genesis do you want? I'll give you all the Genesis. Um... And I feel like Amadeus is kind of... I feel like, even though I was being a dick about it, when I was showing people Amadeus, I was attempting to show them, like, something of myself. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, this is the best... And I think that's what's happening here. And I've talked about this a lot, too. One of the reasons I enjoy... That's what part- I do with my number three and my number one now. Yeah. Which is... And your number one, I think, is an interesting touchstone to this, too. Because I don't do it with my number... Three, my one through three. I'm actually okay if nobody likes those movies or has never heard of them or whatever. Um, I prefer it if it's only like me and Amy Nicholson that really love like my number one. Um, and not because I, I just, it makes me feel more like more mine. And I don't want to talk about it. 
Um, but yeah, this just seemed like a distillation in, in a lot of ways of like the ways that I would function going forward. Like this is what's important to me. This movie for sure, but like I'm going to interact with everything like I interact with this. And if it's no good, I don't have time for it. Which is why I was just kind of like, oh, you don't want to watch this? Then let's just not even do this anymore. Because I don't, what's the point? Like, because this is me. So if you're not interested in me, how can you be interested in me? Right? Yeah. Like, it's, I mean, it's stupid. And it's something that I You don't think, get me sort of thing. Yeah, like, and I feel like get... it's something only stupid people like you and me do. Um, and there's a lot of us out there. But, like, this is just what it is. And I just love music. And I love movies and books. And if you don't have any time for that stuff, like, I just don't even really know what to say to you. And it's one of the things that I find, like, I don't make... I'm not super interested in making a lot of friends. But I've made friends with, like, a bunch of people... Not a bunch of people. A few select people at my kid's school... Not because we have kids. I really hate talking to people about their kids. You know what I mean? I like you. Hate, you hate people's. You I, hate kids who aren't your kids. And I sometimes like those kids, and I respect those kids, and they're they could be nice kids. But I that's, just that's growth. I don't. I don't necessarily. I don't want to know like all the stuff that they're doing because guess what? I also have kids, and they're probably doing all the same stuff. You know what yeah. I mean? They like the same stuff. They see the same stuff. They act the same way. They're fucking kids. But you are 30-something years old, and you have lived, like, a life, and I want to hear about, like, that life. And when I meet people that are, like, I'm really passionate about, like, X, Y, and Z, which is very few and far between, I'm like, I want to, let's know each other better. Because I just, this movie to me, like, in its purest form is a movie about passionate people. And you can feel however you want to feel about, like, any of the aspects of it. Although I will defend like every aspect of it, um, is it's at its core, it's a movie about like just people that are like passionate about their art, and their art speaks to them, and it disappoints them, and it thrills them, and that is that is this, and it's a it, it stands in juxtaposition to my number three because this is a movie about making art, and my number three is a movie about appreciating art. And there is, there's big differences there. Um, so I'm excited to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Um, but I'm also, I'm curious to know, because, you know, we talked about this a couple of days ago. And you had, you know, um, you had to find your comments, I think. Or you had to find, like, you're thinking about it because you hadn't seen it in a while. So I'm interested, like, I'm interested to know when people, like, found this movie. Because it's, a, it's kind of a classic, you know what I mean? Um, but I don't know, I don't always know if it's perceived as, like, a movie that you have to see. Yeah, I don't think it is, necessarily. I think it's considered, like, one of the greats of the 80s in terms of, like, critical darlings sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a pretty weak overall year in terms of the Oscars. I think this and Killing Fields. I love the Killing Fields, yeah. Yeah, are the only two movies that, like, are really super well-received in terms of that sort of critical acclaim. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is the year where, like, Ghostbusters pops up a lot, and, like, 2010 gets a lot of nominations. Oh, yeah, 2010. Um, the sequel to 2001. I think those mid... I think that mid-'80s period is just not super deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my relationship with this has always been kind of distant. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember... <laughs> it, was, it was in a class that we watched this, 
and we watched the first 30 minutes and we're going to watch the rest of it in the next class because we had like long periods yeah yeah like three hours long um and i just missed that next one because i was sick or something mm-hmm. um and so i eventually ended up seeing it again in college and i just couldn't connect with it um because of because of tom holch holtz i see his last name holtz holtz yeah and rewatching it this time it's the same the same issue i i like it a lot more but i still don't i still think F. Murray Abraham and Elizabeth Barridge are doing stuff. And I think Tom Holsch and Jeffrey Jones. Well, are. Jeffrey Jones is being Jeffrey Jones. Yeah, I, but I, I think both of those, because they're like the two other prominent features in this film, right. I don't think they're able to carry that same level of weight. Um, like, even when, you know, Holsch is kind of like going through that thing of, of writing Requiem and whatnot. Um, it doesn't have you're being told it has this side of like gravity to it and it's tearing him up but i don't feel he's ever selling it i only feel like he's i mean and it's one of those things where i don't worry about it but i i guess i sort of understand what you mean except for when he's writing the requiem and he's mouthing those broken yeah, notes yeah, yeah. to like salieri and i'm just like i don't even know what he's i can't even hear a tone there but somehow they're on like the, the wavelength enough for him to kind of understand where he's going, what he wants to do. But it, all, it also just seems like th- words that have to just come out of him, regardless of like what form that they take when but they I, do I that. Feel, I feel as though it works because of like Abraham's like frantic writing and just the way Foreman's do it. And I think that's my issue with this film is like it always feels like it works in spite of Tumble, which I guess is like. Uh, because he's the one that's making the big choice, I suppose. You know what I mean? He's the one that's kind of... Which is not to say that... And I don't have... And just to clarify, I have no feelings about Mozart. I, I've tried to kind of get yeah, into classical music, and I just... Some stuff I dig, and some stuff I just kind of... I, I don't... And, I actively don't like Mozart's music. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've never, like, listened it's to it outside mathy. of the music. It's mathy and kind of, like... Hard. It doesn't have a passion to it for me. Yeah, I just... I don't... Again, so yeah, I don't connect with it. Even like the piano stuff. I'm a Vivaldi, I like, um, Beethoven guy of that era. But, yeah, so he's the one... Count Vivaldi is that era. He's the one making um, He's the one making the big choice. But I think in a lot of ways, it's... The he's has to make him... And he definitely did it on purpose. Or Foreman definitely intended for this role to be played like in this fashion. Because the script is what it is. And so he can't go... Tom Holtz didn't make up like the scenes where he's being gross and like doing all that other stuff. You know what I mean? That's all in the script. Yeah. And stuff. It's all in the play. Um, so he's got to play this, even though I'm, I've been told I guess the play is more serious than the, the movie is in a lot of ways. more somber than the movie is. Um, so he's got to make him... He's got to make him interesting. He's got to make him big. He's got to make him a complete anachronism to the yeah real the caricature. Life. Yeah. Um, but I think that helps in a lot of ways in selling the operas later because again, I'm also not an opera guy. So the way that I am moved by these operas is not through the music; it's through 
F. Murray Abraham's kind of narration of his feelings is helpful also. But that is also overlaid, also overlays, um, or is laid over, uh, Tom Hulse's just kind of ecstatic performance while these operas are going on. Yeah. And I suppose I can kind of forgive some of the, you know, the dramatic turns it's that kind the, of happen. That... It's not the dramatic turns he does. It's kind of a flat energy. I don't not, respond And I, when I say the dramatic turns, I just mean the times when he's not doing that stuff. Mm. And especially, it's like, especially later in the movie, like when he has to kind of like um, fight with his dad or, you know, when he's kind of having, um, uh, when he's just like writing. Yeah. Um, and he goes to the, you know, he goes to the door when F. Murray Abraham first comes to the thing. It's kind of, it's a little bit not, the intensity's not up to where, it, like, it is at all the other times. Um, but again, it's one of those things that, like, I don't. Um, I can shape those performances in my mind to work. I think, I think because what's interesting to me is that the scenes that work the best for me are the two scenes with Constance and Salieri. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two that are like hit on every level for mm-hmm. me. Because like both those, both of them, you know, Burridge and, and Abraham are act, working well off each other. I'm surprised she didn't get a supporting actress nomination for this. Um, yeah, I don't know. Especially Just... looking at the performances uh, that got nominated. Um, well, all the people that got nominated, I think, are all people, right? Yeah. She never really did anything of substance really after this. Right. Um... Well, I think the two... well, they work so well off of each other, and like right. there's a lot of like non-vocal acting going on there. And I think the other guy who I think deserves some kind of pat on the back is whoever. If you have the Wikipedia thing in front of you, the um, the guy that plays the father who goes to see Salieri in the the uh, madhouse, Richard Frank, I think. Oh, it is Richard Frank. Yeah, um, he's fucking great. I mean, he is sells like the range of emotions that well, like he, he died from AIDS. Oh, really? He only had two roles in movies, too. Hmm. He was in this and then Baby Brown in 1990. I feel like I've seen him in lots of stuff, but maybe I haven't. He was in Mad About You. Maybe I've just internalized Larry Sanders. You watched Larry Sanders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was, he was regularly he was a regular mm. on that. And Matlock. I watched a lot of Matlock. My mom liked Matlock. Um, but I, thought, I, I, I always find his performance like totally heartbreaking. Like He doesn't want to hear this, but he also... Seems to kind of understand, like some of the some of the difficulties. Some and we don't know anything about him, but just I really focused on him in this most recent viewing, and he seems to really kind of understand and have a lot of sympathy for some of the stuff that Salieri is saying about his relationship to God, and like how God has disappointed him, and like how what he's given to God, and like what God hasn't given him. Um, and I think a lot of that faith stuff. Um, coming from someone who has no like specific faith in like a Christian religion really works for me here. I mean, because it's, it has nothing to do with, it's like, I love the idea of conditional faith, um, which I think should be, which should be real. Um, and the society, our society would be better if we thought of stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's Amadeus is a movie for me. That's kind of, it's, it's almost like a definition of a pivotal film. We're getting to kind of, um, I think in some of the ways that like I, I saw a lot of uh, interconnected things in your list when I did my highlighting session there. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of themes and things that kind of run through 
my list as well, and I think they're clarified in these. In my top six, I think clarifies them pretty well for me. And, uh, yeah, I love Amadeus. Amadeus, Amadeus? Doesn't feature into this movie at all. Not in a really weird turn. But in a good credit sequence. Would it? No. Yes. They just threw... What is that song called? Falco? Rock Me Amadeus? Is that, just, is that Rock Me Amadeus? I mean, unless it has some weird 80s name, and it's Rock Me Amadeus is in quotes. It's just Rock Me Amadeus, yeah. No, I definitely appreciated it more. It's just like, it's just, there is, there's the choices in it. And I just, I don't, I just, I, yeah, I, I, I don't feel it, it, cont- it, it carries the same energy all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what's always kind of, and I, I think this is just kind of endemic of, of, of a lot of that kind of like era in the mid eighties of like not being able to carry its energy. Well, I feel like this is, this is, this feels different than a lot. So the, the killing fields in this, if you look at all those other movies, you look at the killing fields in this, those are different kinds of movies. Like Milos Forman's in Saul Zantz, or, or not Saul Zantz, Saul Zantz, right? Yeah. The guy, the, the producer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, they didn't make like regular movies like they even like something like one flew over the cuckoo's nest which seems so weird and stayed now um in 1975 was really something very kind of groundbreaking and original and and weird and um you know is not as good as the novel that it was based off of but it was was something it was something interesting and the killing fields is is i think my favorite one of my favorite vietnam well salzans would do english patient Right, and which is a totally fucking weird but movie that I hate. Yeah, but I think it's because it's made by a guy who makes movies that I don't like, and it's full of people who I don't really like watching movies. I like some of them, but not all of them. You're a real, you have a real hatred for Kristen Scott Thomas. I do not like Kristen Scott Thomas. Really, I'm not a Kristen Scott Thomas fan. I didn't realize people could have opinions on Kristen Scott Thomas. You know why? Because I'd always just rather see... Every time I see Kristen Scott Thomas for a while, I was like, oh, good, she's in it. And then it was not Emma Thompson. It was Kristen Scott Thomas. Which bummed me out. (laughs) I was like, oh, there's no personality in this performance. Great. Terrific. I don't think I've ever actually seen English Patient. It just seems like too much. Did you ever see that episode of Seinfeld about the English Patient? When Elaine hates the English patient? you think I saw an episode I think you may have seen it. Whether or not you hated yourself while watching it. I tried to burn it. it. If I did, I burned it out of my brain. Love Seinfeld. I've been showing it to my kids. Um, Unfortunate. There's a lot more sex stuff. They talk about masturbating all the time on Seinfeld. Your kids just look at me like, this is terrible. No, they think it's funny. I think because they grew up with me. So they find like that kind of nihilistic humor very amusing, <laughs> which speaks badly for have them. I, have, I ever, I guess. Have, I, have I talked about my hatred of Seinfeld on this podcast? I can't. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we've yeah, talked I, about I, it a lot. I hate Seinfeld with like a passion. That's my feet. Oh, okay. it sounded like something scurrying <laughs> in through a window. Um, yeah. I just, well, I yeah, because it. you said you've always blamed the coast thing. I think that's a good argument. Most people from the West Coast like Friends. And most people from the East Coast hate Friends. I do hate Friends. I like Friends and I hate Seinfeld, so it's a coast thing. Mm. Not a lot of people on the West Coast that I've talked to like Friend, like, like Seinfeld. Because hmm. they're too nice? It's too, yeah, it's too mean. I love it. I love it. 
I wish I had opportunities to be that mean to people. But I like Curb Your Enthusiasm, so I don't know. I like Curb Your Enthusiasm, too. I think it's because Larry gets shamed. No, that's probably what it is. It's like a nice mix of the two. So in Seinfeld, they just win. Yeah. When they don't win, they just, you know, they don't have to feel bad about themselves. And then Larry David does sometimes feel... It's a nice mix of the, of the two coasts. Hmm. That's what Larry David is. Yeah. If you want to talk about the coasts... You can tweet us at Film Pivotal. Don't know what you'd say. We probably want to respond. This will be the one thing that people have something to say, comment to us about. Or you can uh, message us at pivotalfilmpodcast.gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and see a list of the movies on our Top 100 list and how to subscribe to stuff or to contact us from there and have an update in a while or see the list of the beers uh, that we drank. Um, but we're closing in now. Well, Mofos. Next week is your number three, I believe. Yeah. We decided, yeah, 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 yeah. Because we decided Justice League works better with my number three. <laughs> Whatever that means. And your movie works best with Cherry. Sure. And uh, Raya the Last oh, right, right, Dragon? Last which something be, Dragon? Which might be good. You watched Getting it. Very good. We didn't watch it yet. Oh, I thought you would have watched it last night. We watched Civil War instead. The Ken Burns documentary? <laughs> no. all, all nine hours the of Marvel, it? The Marvel documentary. I'm, I, I'm sorry. Civil War. That is my least favorite Marvel film. Um, I hadn't seen it all the way through. I no I, second least favorite. I'm gonna be honest Dark with you. World is I like um them less when they're in the real world. I like it when they're just like fighting each other. So that's why I think Infinity War and Endgame work so well because it's just like superhero versus supervillain, and I think we're going in that direction. Like as the as the series progresses, there's going to be way less um, gunfighting and more like. Superhero versus supervillain laser fighting. fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is I'm I I don't like the idea that there's like I don't like the idea that they made a whole bunch of movies hinged on the fact that they killed a bunch of people in Sokovia. And the best way to, you know, deal with that is just to kill more people. There's a lot of gunfighting in Civil War, right? Tons, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tons. You do you um, um, you're not a Civil War guy, I'm guessing. I'm in, kind of indifferent to it. I like the I like the fight. I like the fight the, the hangar fight. Oh, yeah. Between the the Marvel characters. Outside of Tom Holland in that part, I I just like just like that. And Paul Rudd. Oh, Paul Rudd's good, but Paul Rudd's just not featured that much in it. He is. He's super featured. But I, I mean, my problem with Civil War is that I fucking hate Captain America. I think Chris Evans' Captain America is the fucking worst. He is a baby, and. If he represents like what America is, then we should be ashamed of ourselves. I mean, would you be surprised? He's just terrible. He is that that Boy Scout shit, like libertarian garbage, is just nonsense. You can't. Oh, you are. I want to be able to fight all the battles I want. That's why we don't record on Fridays. It's loud. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting close to masks off in Connecticut. People are roaming. And those people are definitely drinking beers. We don't know if they're watching movies, though. We may see them next week. <laughs> that worked, right? Sure. Sure. sure.